Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Bible. Of course, we're in our series of the life and ministry of Moses, and we'll continue back in the book of Numbers here in just a bit. But before we do that, we want to take a pit stop and give an overview of the message that we're going to see. Now, where we left off at is that we were introduced to a preacher for sale by the name of Balak. And we understood that Balak was someone who knew the Lord. He was someone who knew how to get his answers to prayer. He was known for someone who had his prayers answered. He was someone who was able to determine the path the perfect will of God, what God would have him to do. He was even able to discern when God did not want him to take that path. So what we're, not, we're talking about is someone who knew the Lord. And yet, because of an opportunity of finances came up, an opportunity of greed, he begged and f- wanted to have his way so much that Lord said, fine, just go do whatever you want, which we all know is translated that if you do it, you're going to be in trouble. But he did it anyways. And here he is in the place of Moab hired to curse the people of God. And instead of cursing the people of God, he ended up blessing the people of God. And now he's in trouble because God has gotten his attention. Remember, we had the talking donkey that he had beat the donkey three different times. And God just loosened the tongue of the donkey and allowed the donkey to actually speak to him. And instead of batting an eye and say, why are you talking? He got in a conversation with it. And God used this to get his attention and said, listen here, you better only do what I tell you to do. And so now he's under the fear of death of God. And yet he's under the hire of someone who's trying to pay him to curse these people. He wants the money. He's afraid of God. He, he's afraid what will happen if he offends these people. But he's more afraid of God. And he's in a little straight. He's in between a problem. What do I do? What do I do? And after it came apparent that he could not curse God's people, he had to come up with a different solution. Because he has a king who's in front of him who wants to kill him. And he cannot go against God. What does he do? And so he came up with an inventive solution. Which shows us how Satan works by the way. And it is so important of an incident. That the Bible references it in the New Testament three different times. And we're going to find the last reference of it in the book of Revelation chapter number two. We're going to look at this reference and then we'll pray and then we'll go back to the historical part of Numbers. But I want you to see what the Bible has to say in reference to this event in the book of Revelation chapter two. The book of Revelation chapter 2, and notice with me as the angel is, or Jesus is writing a letter to the church of Pergamos, and in the midst of this letter in verse number 14, we could see this, this incident here. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught 
Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark this important phrase? And let me tell you, this is an important phrase. Notice in Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. And with the Lord's help, I want to explain to you first historically what occurred, and then doctrinally through the New Testament, what is this doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you as we come up to this message now that we have your word. It doesn't, it doesn't have to depend on my opinion or my thoughts. Help us just to see what you say about this and that we can apply this, that we can see how important this doctrine is this doctrine of Balaam and how we need to avoid it, stay away from it, and be very discerning how Satan uses this to go ahead and cause the blessings to be removed from your people, even us. Lord, I'm just asking that you would just help our influence, and most of all, that we would look towards Christ, that we may have him, that he would be the goal, that he'd be the one that we tried to please. And in your name we pray, amen. And so if you wouldn't mind, let's go back to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25, and let's look at the historical part of this. And let's first of all just ask the question through this history, what is this doctrine? As we talk about the doctrine of Balaam, what is this doctrine? Now remember where we left off at is that Balaam had been hired to curse the people of God and he could not. Every time he tried to curse the people of God, he ended up blessing them. And so when it became apparent that he, as an outside force, could not bless or curse the people of God, what he did do was something that caused God's people to be cursed by themselves. Notice as we see the history of it in the book of Numbers chapter 25. The book of Numbers 25, and basically we're seeing the aftermath of this. Notice with me in Numbers 25 and verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself under Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And when he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel, the woman, threw her belly. 
So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Now what we're seeing here is the aftermath. So we leave off in chapter 24 with the image of, of Balak and Balaam standing on the hillside where they cannot curse them. The scene fades to black and then goes to Israel. And in Israel, you see them start to be in turmoil. And next thing you know, the judgment of God's falling upon them. What happened? What is this doctrine of Balaam? Well, what happened is that Balaam said, listen, we cannot curse them from the outside. But let me tell you how we can get God to rain his wrath upon the people. And the way that we do this is that we take away their separation. Separation. And so what Balaam did is he said, Balak, what you need to do is join forces with them. You go ahead and bring your women, your wives, your daughters, and let them meet the men of the camp. And you let them get into a relationship, and you let them date people who are not believers. And you know what will happen? Is that the non-believers will influence the believers not to follow God. And that's exactly what happened. Notice again, verse number one. And Israel abode in Shittim. Now remember, we're right in Moab. And so they're right at the edge of the Jordan River, looking across the river. They're in the region of Moab. This is why Balak was so concerned, because there's two and a half million people inside of his land. And notice this. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Meaning that they begin to have relationships with these ladies of Moab who were not Hebrew ladies, who were not Israelites, who served other gods. And they allowed that to happen. Believers begin to date, have relationships, have <laughs> relationships with unbelievers. And because of this, notice what happened, verse 2. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, little g-gods. The people of Moab did not serve the God of Israel. They served other false gods. In fact, one of them is going to be mentioned in just a second. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. So as they broke this fellowship, as they stopped their separation, they began to fellowship with the people, have good relations with the people, have friendships with the world, have... Uh, <laughs> Marital relations, begin to date, begin to this. And the next thing you know, instead of serving God, they begin to serve these false gods. You understand that when two people are in a friendship or in a fellowship, the person who is godly usually does not, hardly ever, maybe never and ever, brings that other person up. In fact, the person usually brings them down. That's always how it's portrayed in the Bible. And so having this close friendship, having it where we're hanging out and having this fellowship here, it never brings it where the children of Israel are bringing these Moabites to serve their God. The Moabites are dragging the people away from the true God to serve these false gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor. Baal, of course, we're going to see that name throughout here. It's is the thunder god. 
found within this area here. This was the God that they would pray upon to bring the thunder and the lightning. To bring the rain for the crops. And Baal Peor is a specific incarnation of this that usually would include sexual worship practices. So when it's talking about that they bow down to their gods, I'm trying to be as um, (laughs) sensitive as possible. But in order to worship this god, they would have to be involved in sexual worship practices. And that was not pleasing to God at all. And God was not happy with this. These gods aren't even real. And yet they're defiling themselves. They're they're (laughs) living immorality in order to be pleasing to these people and worship these gods. And the Lord was kindled against them. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. So much so that God tells Moses to go gather the people and we've got to do something about this. And then it just to show how awful this was. Verse number 6. And behold one of the children of Israel brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. So imagine this scene. All right, The people have already defiled. This has gone on for a small period of time. Where these Moabite women had showed up in the camp. And they had started to get the other people to worship. And to distract them. And then God says hey do you know what's going on with the people? Go take care of this. And so Moses is coming and he's preaching against this. Separate yourselves unto the Lord. Separate yourselves from the world. Be close to the God. Be close to God. And as Moses is preaching this. And it's telling people that be ye separate. Be holy for God is holy. He's preaching this. In the midst of the preaching. You have a guy on a purpose. Says I can do whatever I want. And takes his Moabite girlfriend. And goes in front of the camp, in front of Moses, while he's preaching. And says, I can do whatever I want and there's nothing you can do about it. We'll cover this attitude here in just a bit. But he did it in front. This word before carries the idea blatantly in front of them. Doing it on purpose. He's not hiding it. He's doing it on purpose. Can you imagine what this would be like? Does someone dragging their ungodly girlfriend in there and said you know what I could do whatever I want and there's nothing you could do about it yeah well Phineas uh, becomes a hero here he takes Phineas which is the grandson of Aaron the son of Eleazar he takes us he takes a javelin and he takes it and the guy and the girl actually go into a tent to go ahead and take care of their business Phineas goes in and just takes care of that business, and people got the picture. God was not happy with this relationship, was not happy with this. And basically, what has happened is that Balaam said, listen, we could get God to curse him. Once again, he understands who God is. He still wants the money, and so he's got to come up with a way. How can I get these people to be destroyed? We can't destroy them from the outside. But what we could do is allow God to remove his blessing upon these people. And God destroy them themselves. How do we do that? By get them to separate. Or lack of separation. To get them to be just like the world. To hang out with the world. To be just like them. By the way, the same thing's true of the church. 
Satan cannot destroy the church from without. The attacks from without cannot destroy a church. How is a church destroyed? It's destroyed from within. As people are no longer following the Lord and they follow the world, they follow what they want to do and they stop getting close to God and God will remove his blessing from that church. And the church cannot survive without God's blessing. And it will die and become ineffective and powerless. This is such a big deal that God refers to this incident over and over and over. May I show you a couple of passages just to highlight this. Turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter chapter number 2. 2 Peter chapter number 2. And in 2 Peter chapter number 2, notice with me in 2 Peter chapter 2, notice with me in verse number 15. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. Which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Pezor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. But notice this, it refers to this doctrine as the way of Balaam here. The way of Balaam. Inside of Second Peter, it's taking time to speak about false prophets. It's taking time to speak about those people who will drag those away from following after God. And teaching Christians, you could do whatever you want and get away with it. You have liberty. And that's not the liberty that God gives. And this is how our separation, when we are no longer separated from the world, we also remove ourselves from the blessing of God. You understand this is such important that God calls this the way of Balaam. It's referred to in the book of Jude. Notice with me in the book of Jude, there's only one chapter. But notice this in the book of Jude. Here it's talking about, once again, false doctrines, uh, false prophets who are leading people away from being separate from the world and unto the Lord. And so notice this. It actually lists three people in this thing here. Verse number 10, just to give a good running start. But these speak evil of the things which they know not, but what they know naturally, meaning as unsaved people, as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And then it goes on, verse number 12. These are spots in your feet of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of sea, foaming out of their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. But notice again, here in verse 11, it calls it the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. So in Second Peter, it calls it the way of Balaam. That these people are no longer separate unto the Lord. Separate from the world unto the Lord. And the book of Jude, it says it is the error of Balaam. And then we go to the book of Revelation 2.14 where we just left off just a couple pages over. Where he's talking to the church of Pergamos. And he's rebuking this. And verse number 14 Revelation 2.14. 
But I have a few things against thee. Notice this. This is Jesus writing a letter to the church of Pergamos. And saying I've got a few things against you. Now if Jesus is saying he's got a few things against you. That's probably not a good thing. What is it that Jesus has against the church of Pergamos? Because thou hast there. So in the congregation. Them that held the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block. So notice this. This is where we get this whole idea of the transition from Numbers 24 to 25. Here, Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. How did he do that? He brought the Moabite women into the camp. Those people distracted them from serving God. And instead they're doing whatever they want. I've got liberty. I can do whatever I want. Now they're no longer getting close to God. Their fellowship with God is no longer close. God's blessing and favor is removed from that group of people. And God, Jesus is saying, I've got something against you, Church of Pergamos, because you have in your midst some people who refuse to be separate from the world, refuse to be separated unto the Lord, and now they're following in the same era. And what's going to happen following this doctrine of Balaam is that they're, <laughs> they're going to eat things, sacrifice to idols. That's what happened in Numbers 25. And to commit fornication. Meaning this is an idea where they're no longer serving God and they could do whatever they want to because they have liberty. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Yes, but the Christian life has much more than this. The whole purpose of the Christian life is not just to be saved. Salvation is not the end all of the Christian life. What is it? The goal is God. To be with him. To know Him. To be close to Him. He's the goal. God saves us so we can be close to God. He removes that sin. And as long as we're not separate from the world, we cannot be separated unto the Lord. It is an either or. You have to pick one. You cannot be both. So here is the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam it is worldliness. If you were to take one word to describe this doctrine, it is worldliness. Worldliness. It is attack on the separation of God's people. So now we bring it to this. What is the application of this doctrine? Because we learn about this doctrine, because God places an emphasis, and by the way, if God places such an emphasis like he did three times, this is important. We cannot underemphasize this. We cannot underscore this enough. This is a big deal to God. And may I also make a reminder that to the Christian church today, this is not a big deal to God. They do not like separation from the world unto the they like their liberty. This is the word they use. And it's not used the way the Bible uses it. God has not given us a liberty to sin. He's given us the freedom to choose to follow after Christ. But people say, I can do whatever I want. I'm saved and I am fine. And let me tell you, that is an incorrect answer, sir. That is incorrect. And God is placing the emphasis here. He's trying to get the attention that separation from the world... Unto the Lord is important to God. May I show you this in a doctrine form in the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 6. 
the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 6. And by the way, that was warming up to the preaching time. Now is the preaching time. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. Notice this. Separation is a command. Notice with me 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and notice with me in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? That's Baal. And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What we see here is that separation is a command. Most Christians today teach it as an option, and not even an important option. But this is not an option, it is a command. Because our fellowship with God is at stake. God desires us to be close to Him. And so much so that He gives a principle here. He's teaching us here that (laughs) the salvation from sin is to be followed from a separation from the world. Now Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth under the inspiration of scripture, gives a half a dozen reasons why we should be separated. He starts off because righteousness demands it. Righteousness demands it. Notice in verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now this is a farming tool. You can know what a yoke is. A yoke is something that you would harness up to a bunch of animals to help plow a field. And what would happen to be unequally yoked, meaning you would have two different types of animals. For example, if I wanted to plow my field straight, and I put in a harness, a ox and a horse, and I put them in the same, same uh, yoke, would I get a straight field? No. Why not? Because even though they're harnessed together, they both have different gates. They both have different structures. They're both different heights. And so what's going to happen, they're going to be fighting against each other the whole time. And that one's going to be pulling to the other and then they're going to compensate. And so I'm not going to get a straight row. I'm going to get one that's all kind of crooked. And the Bible's trying to use a simple term that people can understand. That if I'm going to try to plow a field, I'm going to put the same type of creature inside of the yoke. Not different creatures. This is what it's talking about being unequally yoked. Well, the Bible also goes on, as we're going to be specific, to be yoked up. That means to be put together for service. And so we know that a husband and wife are to be equally yoked, meaning not only do they both need to be believers, if one's a believer and one's not, then let me tell you, it is not God's will for you to be married according to the scriptures. But it goes beyond that. Are both of them having a desire to serve God? Then if both of them are saved and serving God, they're both equally yoked. If you have two lost people 
Well, that they're still equally yoked. They're going the same direction. But you understand if you're saved and you're with someone, <laughs> meaning someone dating someone. Let's, we got teenagers in here. Let me be specific in here. If you try to date someone who is not saved, you're not going the same direction. You're trying to follow God and they're not. You cannot go the same direction. You can't go the same speed. You don't have the same purpose. And it's not going to be the same. But the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. By the way, that also goes with the idea of trying to do service for God. So many churches today are trying to partner up with unsaved people to quote unquote get God's work accomplished. It cannot and it will not be done. The Bible is clear. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Why should we be separated? Because righteousness demands it. If you have someone that is classified as right in God's eyes and someone who's classified as wicked in God's eyes, those two things don't go together. The Bible is clear because righteousness demands it. Not only does righteousness demand it, but reality demands it. Notice at the end of verse 14. And what communion, remember here we have the common union, this idea of fellowship together. What communion hath light and darkness? Now we know reality. If I was to turn on the light, what happens to darkness? It goes away. Why doesn't it stay? Because there's light. All right? Reality says that if there's light, there's no darkness. Why do we have shadows? Because the light is hidden from that place. Make sense? They cannot exist at the same time. Light and darkness, the reality of it, they don't mix together. You have light or you have darkness. The Bible says we are the light of the world if we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. And someone who is not saved, they are walking in darkness according to the scriptures. They don't blend together. And so we have to not be unequally yoked because righteousness demands it. Reality demands it. Redemption demands it. Notice with me in verse number 15. And what concord, this has the idea of, of accord, of, of fellowshipping together. It carries that idea of being bound together. What concord have Christ with Belial. We know this Belial is the New Testament form of Baal. Didn't we just talk about Baal? Wasn't Baal the, the bad evil God, little g God in the book of Numbers? And was God happy with him when he's saying, hey Baal, why don't you hang out with me? Oh, I'm so glad. No. Even the worship practices of Baal were different. Can God honor the way that those people were worshiping Baal? No. Absolutely not. And so what we see is redemption demands it. We are saved and we're separated unto God. How can we serve Baal? They don't work. You have to serve one or the other because one is real, one is not. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have to choose. You cannot serve both. Notice this, righteousness demands it, reality demands it, redemption demands it, reason demands it. Notice at the end of verse 15, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The word infidel is just a harsh word for an unbeliever. 
Can you have good fellowship about the Lord with someone who's not saved? No. Will they even enjoy the same things? We just got through singing Christmas songs from the hymn book. Will necessarily lost people who are at the bar be singing the same songs we're singing? No, not at all. Why not? Well, reason demands it that they're two different audiences, two different things, two different people, two different ways of serving together. We're, we don't have the common ground. Will they enjoy talking about the Bible like we do? Not at all. We know that because we try to tell them about it. Will they enjoy a church service like this? If we had a lost person who had no interest in being saved and they came in here today because they were bored, would they be enjoying this message right now? No. What we see is reason demands it. They're two different people with two different ideas, two different hearts. Notice as it goes on. Righteousness demands it. Reality demands it. Redemption demands it. Reason demands it. Religion demands it. Notice with me, verse number 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Religion demands it. All right, we're in a church. All right, and with a church, there's an idea of a certain type of uh, um, sanctification, separation unto God. And so let's say that um, we had a Buddha statue up here. Would that, would that match what people's idea of church is? Well, why not? I know. Let's get the horned head of Satan in here. W would that match? I mean, it'd be good to put it on the walls and have a little decor. W no? What if we had Shiva, the, the fertility goddess, the multi-armed goddess of the Hindus, and put a nice little statue? Would that work? No. Why not? Because they're separate. They're two different. They don't belong together. We separate the house of God and we separate it for God's use only. Does that make sense? It should be separated. Now notice this, what God does. For ye are the temple of the living God. For God hath said, I dwell in them and walk in them and I will be they, their God and they'll be my people. Remember that the church is not these four walls. It is the congregation of God's people together. And God has designed you for him to live within you when you're saved. You are the temple of the living God. And just like you would not have inside of this church building these false idols, why in the world would you put them in your heart? Why in the world would you allow them in your life? Why would you allow them to have a place in your mind, in your being? How do you do that? Television? Oh, there's plenty of stuff that are serving Satan and other gods on television. Radio? Jokes? Conversations? You understand, we are supposed to be separated for God and God's use for the purpose of us fellowshipping. How can we fellowship with God? Can you imagine us singing these same Christian songs when we're having the, the goat head of Satan right here and everybody's staring at it? Wouldn't it be difficult to sing about how good God is? You understand, we have to be careful because God says we're the temple. Religion demands it. Notice this. Revelation demands it. Notice this. What has God revealed about this? The end of verse 16. And I will be 
their God. And they shall be my people. God has revealed that the whole purpose is that he wants to be our God. And he wants to be He wants us to be his people. He wants to have fellowship with us. Remember, God's not trying to say, I don't want them to have fun. And so you can't do this. And you can't do this. And you know what people do? Because they don't like separation, they try to put an emphasis on the prohibitions. By the way, that's exactly what Satan did to Eve. You can eat all of these trees, huh? Yeah, except for that one. Oh, God said you couldn't eat that one. You know, God's not being fair to you because he won't let you eat of that one. They had all these other trees. Why did that one matter when I could have the liberty to eat this? This is what the world tries to do to Christians. And what Christians get sucked up to is that they put an emphasis on the prohibitions. Well, my pastor said I can't do this. That's not the point. The point is, is that we're, I'm at, you're being taught not to do those things so you could fellowship with him. So you could be with him. The idea that Christians have today, it's all about my liberty. Here's the question they ask. What's wrong with blank? That's the question. What's wrong with this? That's the wrong question. What's right with that? You see, the Christian life is a choice between not the good and the bad. It's a choice between the good and the best. And the best is the pursuit of Jesus Christ. There are some things that in my life is not sinful, not necessarily wicked, but I choose not to do them that I may have him. My choice is not what's wrong with this. And this is their thing. What's wrong with this? I could do it if I want to. There's nothing wrong with it. The Bible says I can. Yes. But is it going to keep you from getting closer to God? If it's going to keep you. If it's going to hinder you. Even if it's going to get close to hindering you. Why do it? Because I enjoy it. That's the key. People do what they want to. Paul says... I put those things aside that I may know him. And so there are some things I choose not to do as a believer. So I can have him. You may have heard of this idea before. But there was a king who was looking for a new carriage driver. And his castle happened to be on a mountain with huge cliffs that would just fall straight down. And as he was interviewing the carriage drivers, he talked to the first one and said, How close do you think you could get to the edge? And the man was pretty confident in his abilities and said, You know what? I think I could get it within a half a foot of the edge. I could think I could ride it all the way down and keep it within a half a foot and keep you safe. Well, thanks. He went to the second guy. How close do you think you could get to the edge riding this carriage down? He says, you know what? I'm pretty confident. I think I could get it within a couple inches and ride that edge all the way down and keep it from falling over. Well, that's great. He went to the third guy and he says, how close do you think he could get? He says, I'm pretty confident in my abilities, but if it's fine with you, I'm going to stay close to the wall and stay away from the edge. You're hired. What Christians always try to do, it's our nature. What can we get away with? What can I do? 
How close to the edge can I get? Well, I'm not sinning. I'm fine where I'm at. Wrong question. Is it getting you closer to God doing that act? Enjoying that thing. Listening to that. Watching that program. Enjoying that pastime. The question is, is not what's wrong with it. What's right with it? This is the idea of separation. Because what Satan tries to do, works on it a little bit. Works on it a little bit. Works on it. Draws you close. I could get away with this. I could get away with this. Oh, I could go with this. Someone once said, you know, the way that you look at the world, what happens when you die and you find out that you could have enjoyed all of this? Well, then I'd rather uh, err on the side of conservatism because I would hate to make it to heaven and stand before God and find out that all those things I participated in was something that was displeasing to him. You understand? It's not what I can get away with. It's what gets me closer to him. The Bible here is clear. So much so that it is talking and referencing something, an event that happened with Baal. The way of Balaam. The error of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. And it was so bad that Jesus told a church, I have something against thee. Because you have people inside of your congregation who are participating in the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? It is the lack of separation of the world. It is worldliness. It is saying I can enjoy the things of the world and be fine. Sure, you're not losing your salvation. Sure, but is it getting you closer to God? Notice in 17 and 18 of First, uh, 2 Corinthians 16, what happens is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, repeats it in a summarized form to get us across. Verse 17, Wherefore, so because of the things I just said to you, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Notice this. He said, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you should be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Again, what happens is that so much emphasis is placed on the prohibition. Be separate to the neglect of what are we separating for? What's the purpose? That I may be close to him. Is God worth missing out on that hobby, that substance, that thing? It may not be necessarily sinful, but what's good about it? What will get you close to the Lord? You understand, the goal should be God. It's all about Him. Is what I'm doing, is my hobby, is my thing. Now, I'm not saying that you should erase all There are clearly things that you could do and enjoy life, and God wants you to enjoy life. I'm saying those things where you're going to ask, what's wrong about that? If you catch yourself saying that, you should probably not do it. I could list all these things if you want, but I don't think it's necessary. You understand, we have the principle here. And that your thing is not to get a whole list from preacher. Preacher says, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. That's not the whole thing. The principle of God, of serving Christ is, is that if my goal is Him, then there are going to be things that I naturally choose not to do. 
in order to have him. I don't need a checklist. If I'm trying to follow after him, I will do those things that are naturally right. Whatsoever we eat, whatsoever we drink, let us do all to the glory of God. This is such an important doctrine that again, because of our culture of Christianity, sounds so foreign. And again, I can't underscore enough how, power, how important this is. But to all the rest of the Christians who hear me, and if this message gets passed, they're going to look at me and say, what's wrong with this guy? What drugs is he taking? Doesn't he understand that's not the liberty that I have? I'm saying that this is such a foreign concept. How do I know that? I'm in conversations with him all the time. And so I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying this is how the rest of Christianity looks like. I can mix the world with my Christianity and it's fine. I could put Star Wars and put memes with God in it doesn't work. They're not the same thing. They need to be separate. You understand what I'm trying to get to now. You can't mix these things together. It is not cute to God. And again, I'm talking about something as facetious now as t-shirts that says Coca-Cola instead of said Coca-Cola has Jesus Christ on it, the refreshing flavor or something. They're mixing these things together. And most of the Christian world sees there's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, this goes a lot further than t-shirts and slogans and memes. It goes into actions and pastimes and concerts and this. Well, I could go to this concert and get away with it. I heard that he called himself a Christian, so I'm going to a Christian concert. Doesn't work that way. There are things I choose not to do that may not be evil, may not be wicked, but they may be good and I choose not to do them in order to have the best thing, which is Jesus Christ, that I may know Him. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 920- Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.